Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode of Conspiracy Unlimited, the Frederick Valantich disappearance. On October 21, 1978, 20-year-old Frederick Valantich disappeared in unexplained circumstances while piloting a Cessna 182L light aircraft off the coast of Australia near Melbourne. Prior to his disappearance, Valantich reported via radio that he had encountered a UFO that flew at high speed, dangerously close to his plane, and later hovered over his aircraft. No trace of Valantich or his aircraft were ever found, and a Department of Transport investigation concluded the reason for the disappearance could not be determined. My guest discusses the particulars of this case, which has become a huge part of UFO lore. Call the Valentich case what you want. Call it a UFO case. Call it a disappearance. We have these missing 411 cases, to borrow the term from the popular books by David Politis these days. But again, you know, call it what you want. It's a mystery. We'll probably never really know what happened to him. This podcast is brought to you by Logo Creator 7 Software. These days, it's more important than ever to have a good image, especially if you have a small business or you sell stuff online or post on social media. But quality graphics can cost money, and advanced software like Photoshop takes time to learn. That's why I want to tell you about some amazing piece of software called Creator 7. Creator 7 is so easy to use, yet it lets you create super-looking logos, business cards, character mascots, you name it, in just minutes. Whatever you create is going to look super cool and very impressive. Creator 7 comes with hundreds of ready-made templates. Just click and drag to make changes and instantly you have really impressive graphics right on your computer. Some clever folks have even ordered the Creator 7 software to start their own logo-making business, creating and selling logos and graphics for a profit. That's how good it is, but you won't believe the price. Creator 7 creates beautiful logos and designs right on your computer and works on either PC or Mac. And right now, it's available at an amazing price. To see it in action, just visit RadioShowLogo.com. That's RadioShowLogo.com. RadioShowLogo.com. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. I just went 12 rounds with one of my boys. I tell you, he's 11, but he can really punch. He's got quite a good jab, and, and, and he's a southpaw. He actually knocked my block off. All right, relax. We weren't really boxing. We were playing Rock'em Sock'em Robots. Do you remember that? Well, a couple of years ago, uh, the boys received Rock'em Sock'em Robots for Christmas, and um, we found it online somewhere. And it brought back a lot of memories for me. It was around when I was a kid. In fact, we got out a lot of old board games recently, and we and we play them with the boys. Masterminds, remember that game? Pole Economy, Sorry, Trouble, Balderdash. Good family bonding time. And it gets them off the computer, too. 
Uh, I'll share a little secret with you. I'm, I'm getting the boys hockey nets for Christmas so that they can play ball hockey on the driveway. And again, always looking for ways uh, to get them off the computer. Go outside, kids. The graphics are way better out there. All right, let's get this thing rolling. Uh, you know, for ufologists, one of the most interesting, perplexing cases is the Volantich disappearance. This was a, a young pilot flying off the coast of Australia in a light plane, a Cessna, and he reported seeing a UFO uh, above him, hovering above him, and then there were some strange noises over the radio, and a short while later, he disappeared off radar, never to be heard from again. And that was back in uh, 1978. And UFO enthusiasts suspect this may have been an abduction case. Uh, while skeptics say he crashed the plane or committed suicide or he, he, he deliberately planned to disappear, my guest is not convinced one way or the other regarding the disappearance. Since an early age, Micah Hanks has held a long fascination with the more unique scientific mysteries this world has to offer. A self-proclaimed but not self-righteous skeptic, Micah works as a writer and researcher as well as a radio personality whose work addresses a variety of unexplained phenomena. Over the last decade, his research has taken him into studies of the more esoteric realms of the strange and unusual, as well as cultural phenomena, human history and the prospects of our technological future as a species as influenced by science. He is author of several books, including Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule, Reynolds Mansion, An Invitation to the Past, and his 2012 new page release, The UFO Singularity. Mike is also an executive editor for Intrepid Magazine and consulting editor for Fate Magazine and the Journal of Anomalous Sciences. He also writes for a variety of other publications, including UFO Magazine, Mysterious Universe, and New Dawn. Hanks has appeared on numerous TV and radio programs, including National Geographic's Paranatural, the History Channel's Guts and Bolts, CNN Radio, and the Jeff Rents Program. He also produces a weekly podcast that follows his research at his popular website, GrailianReport.com. Micah Hanks, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? It's been a while. It has been a while, and I couldn't be happier to be here uh, on one of these podcasts with you, sir. Always good to hear your voice and glad to talk about these subjects with you. What a resume. I mean, you, you're one busy cat. Well, you know, some of those things come and go with time. I'm still pretty involved in the publishing side of things, whether it be with books and uh, and certain periodicals or, uh, you know, some, some other endeavors, which... In the coming year, we're going to be hearing more about. I can tell you this much right now. It has a lot to do with archaeology, which is, is a little less involved with the unexplained. You know me, and as you said in the wonderful interview, our uh, introduction that you gave there, by the way, uh, yeah, I call myself an, a, a self-proclaimed but not a self-righteous skeptic. And you can be scientifically minded and look at these subjects. But by virtue of being interested in science, I have a lot of things that fall outside the unusual you might still say that there are a lot of unexplained mysteries that relate to the ancient past and archaeology and things like that, too. So that's what you know I've been into a lot of over the last few uh, months, and, uh, and I think for the next few years it's going to continue to occupy my interest. But I'll always have a home uh, in the what I like to call the Fortean or the Corlissian, as a reference to William R. Corliss, the American physicist, who tried to really truly apply science to our cataloging of ancient mysteries, mysteries of science – 
space-time and the cosmos and really just the everyday, too. I don't think that you have to look very far sometimes to find things that are truly perplexing for us as humans. Oh, it's right in front of our nose. So let's get into the Valentich disappearance, because I know it's of particular interest to you, Micah. Yeah, the uh, Valentich disappearance is is one of the uh, most perplexing UFO cases. Uh, to me, not just because it involves a disappearance. I mean, there are a lot of factors that are involved here. Uh, the facts of the case are as follows. It occurred on, I believe it was a Saturday evening, the 21st of October, 1978. As he was flying, uh, uh, now I'm going to give you some, some qualifiers here in a moment because I've come to know some people who were intimately associated with this case. But that's only after having been interested in it for years. He was flying a Cessna 182L. He was headed south uh, over the Bass Strait, which is south of Australia. And as he was making his way, he was hoping to head down to what's called King Island. And as he's flying along, apparently some sort of an object appears. It has at least a green light on it if it's not emanating green light itself. He describes this object to the air traffic controllers back in Melbourne. And uh, his handle was Delta Sierra Juliet, and he's corresponding with him. Now, there was a recording of this, and as he's in this, unfortunately, the recording was only released to a select few individuals. Later, a transcript of that recording was the best that we were given. But uh, Valentich is in his dialogue over the radio with uh, Melbourne Air, uh, Air Tra Traffic Control. He's describing this object. He's describing a number of features about its behavior, including the fact that at one point he said he was orbiting it. Now, according to some commentators, it sounded suspiciously, if not dangerously, like he may have actually been losing altitude himself because uh, Valentich, the pilot, was paying more attention to the object than to his uh, on-flight or on-aircraft uh, controls. Right. He may have been in some sort of a death spiral that with is, the plane. Yeah. That is pretty much the, the most widely accepted theory as to what happened to him. Now, that said, again, according to the, the transcript of the audio, what we know is that uh, Valentich at one point says, uh, Melbourne, the object is directly above me. Melbourne, it's above me and it's not an aircraft. And then there was about 14 seconds of what was described as like a metallic scraping noise. And then they lose contact with Valentich. Well, I was fascinated with this report. And, and a number of times we brought it up on my uh, podcast, The Graylian Report, which also broadcasts live on, on Monday evenings as, a, as an online radio show. And uh, I've even had people who have investigated the case call into my show uh, randomly, uh, just as callers, sometimes uh, you know, booked in advance as guests. We've, we've had a lot of dialogue about this. And at one point, somebody wrote into my uh, show. They wrote in via email, and they said, you know, look, Freddie's girlfriend, Rhonda, I work with her and uh, told her about your show, and she'd be interested in talking with you. And at first, I didn't think anything about this. I get emails from people all the day saying such and such would like to talk to you. And I went back the next morning, and I, I put my ears back on, and I, I reread this email, and I thought, Freddie, Freddie's girlfriend, Rhonda. I'm thinking, they're talking about Frederick Valentich. Rhonda, Rhonda Rushton was his girlfriend at the time he disappeared. And so I said, I would really like to talk to Rhonda Rushton, and they made the arrangements for us, and we connected via Skype. In fact, I just heard from her the other day. She and I have stayed in touch, and she's a wonderful person. I do hope to get down to Australia at some point and meet her and her husband, Joe, in person. This is like 40 years ago. He was never found. I mean, the, the, I, I believe they suspended the search after about four days. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, that's what I talked to Rhonda about. Some of the things I wanted to know, I said, 
how long did the search go? Were you involved? Did they question you? She said it was like a military interrogation. They brought me in. They had the lights in the room. I had to sit there. I was only 16 years old at the time, and they're asking me all these questions. I asked her some other things too, Richard. I said, you know, were you ever on the plane with him? She says, oh, yeah. I said, well, how many times did you ever fly with him? Hmm, you know, maybe, I don't know, 30. I said, 30 times? Okay, so he flew a lot. She said, oh, yeah. Well, that's interesting because they were led to believe he was he was reasonably inexperienced. He only had, what, maybe 150 hours. That is exactly what the general narrative says. I asked her, I said, okay, I got another question. Were you, did, did you ever fly with him? Did he ever do stunts or anything? She says, I know what you're going to ask. You're asking, did I ever fly upside down with him? Because one theory was that he was flying upside down and didn't realize it. She said, trust me, when you're in one of those planes, you know when it's upside down. And he would do loop-de-loops. He would do all kinds of stuff. Yeah, he would fly upside down. He used to she, fly into clouds and was they were going to threaten uh, suspension or even pressing charges. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was – a bit of a daredevil, it sounds he like. He was a bit of a daredevil, yes. And uh, again, there was an official report uh, that I believe Keith Basterfield uh, acquired a number of years ago, an Australian UFO researcher, uh, which had been left on a, on a government uh, website. It wasn't anything that had been withheld from the public, but it was the official file on the Valentich disappearance. And in it, there is a bit of a profile of, of Freddie. And it describes him as not a Friday night type, and he was very withdrawn, silent, depressed, all these things. I asked Rhonda about that. I said, again, while you were dating him, did he seem like that? She says, not at all. However, she said they quoted me on a number of those things, and they cherry-picked the quotes to make him out to be this manic, depressed individual, this UFO nut. She said, I think he'd read Chariots of the Gods, but it was a popular book at the time. A lot of people had read it. Other than that, he didn't really have a huge interest in UFOs, but the way that the report was written, she said, I read all that. Oh, I'll they, say. I mean, they, they did, exactly. They made him out to be a UFO nut. Even his father is quoted as saying he was obsessed with UFOs, and he was very concerned about some sort of an alien attack. Yeah, she said that I, I, that um, in her discussions and time spent with him that he had never intimated to her that he was concerned about an alien invasion, UFO attacks, anything like that. Now, furthermore, there were questions about, well, the flight record had stated his flight log that he filed had, had stated he was supposed to leave an hour earlier and he left an hour later than planned. He apparently didn't have any clear reason why he was supposed to be going down there to King Island, uh, his stated objective was to go down there and I think pick up crayfish, but there'd been no alert made. The, the people at the air, uh, the, the little airport that was, uh, he was going to land at down there, they didn't even know he was coming. They didn't have the lights on. Rhonda says, you know, again, I, I can't answer those questions myself. And these are some of the things we've always wanted to know, but here's the key that you've got to understand. She said, as far as him leaving late, she said, I worked a job at a chemist at that point. And we didn't have cell phones and stuff back in those days. I was going to fly with him. And then we were going to come back and we were going to celebrate our, like, a, I think it was their three-month anniversary. And she said the plan was we were going to go out to dinner that night. I had planned to be with him in the plane. I wasn't going to get off work in time. I called my mom and dad, asked them, gosh, can you, is there any way you can let him know? Can you, can somebody come pick me up? But they couldn't. They had plans. She didn't get off work in time. She said it was evident that Freddie had waited an hour and when he waited long enough and didn't think that she was going to show up, he went ahead and he was going to do this flight because he had an exam coming up. Fly to King Island, come back, never made it there. So she says, I mean, whatever happened to him, I mean, she said the plan had been I was going to be with him on that plane. So, I mean, a lot of these questions are very difficult to kind of think about because 
Now, again, you know, he left an hour later, presuming she was going to be there. Uh, she wasn't able to make it back in those days. That wasn't all that unusual, again, in the pre-cell phone era. But just imagine all those circumstances. She wasn't on the plane. Right. Which he rules was, out suicide, uh, likely. He's not going to go down with his girlfriend in the uh, in the plane. Yeah. Uh, also, a stage disappearance, which has also been proffered as another explanation because, I mean, if he was waiting around for his girlfriend, then left late, later than he anticipated, obviously he was hoping they would be together. So that would tend to rule out a stage disappearance, although there were reports of a, apparently a Cessna landing, um, I think it was called Cape Otway, right. around the same time as Val, Valentich's uh, disappearance. I don't know. What do you, what do you make of that, that report? Is that part of this false narrative as well? I, you know, again, I don't know about that. I do know that Philip J. I, I know about that report, but again, here's the problem. He, he was very close to his family. Uh, I think, you know, Valentich was only like 21 at the time. Uh, he had been close, of course, with Rhonda. I don't see why he would have or what could have been going on in his life uh, that would have been so dire that he would have had to have staged a disappearance, landed someplace, changed his life and forsaken his family for the rest of his life. That seems extremely unlikely based on what I know from, and I've never spoken with his family, only with Rhonda, but she, of course, has remained in touch with a lot of them over the years. And, you know, from what she's told me, to me, that seems extremely unlikely. But, again, then you've got guys like Philip J. Class, uh, you know, who was the penultimate UFO skeptic of, you know, the last uh, couple of decades until he passed away, you know, starting back in the 1970s, I suppose. He had been, I think, the one who had said that, well, maybe he had a girlfriend. He was just flying down to King Island to see his girlfriend. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm talking with Rhonda, well, if Rhonda was supposed to be with him on the plane that night, that makes that an awfully unlikely hypothesis. Rhonda, did he ever call you? Did any of these skeptics ever offer to interview you or reach out to you and ask you questions? She said, never, not a one. And that's the thing is if we're going to be good investigators or researchers of any kind of phenomena, historical, scientific, you know, whatever, fringe, we need to be able to get over that, well, let's just make suppositions and leave the witnesses to the wayside because they're unreliable you know, from the outset. This is an argument you hear people make. Well, again, human senses and the human memory are infinitely uh, fallible. Why even bother interviewing these people? Imagine the things you could learn if you would sit down and talk to those who claim to have been involved. Well, this is the thing. <laughs> Eyewitness testimony is has always been considered important uh, a testimony, important evidence in any criminal proceeding. People have been sent to the chair based on eyewitness testimony. And yet, whenever we have these unusual cases, even, you know, the, the JFK assassination, how many people who were standing on the grassy knoll were asked to testify before the Warren Commission? Uh, we just, I've seen this movie before. You have too. We know how it ends. I mean, they never seem to, to interview the people that matter. Well, that's true. And again, people would say, but you know what? Sorry, guys, with science, we need more than just eyewitness testimony. And sure, what is held up in court, that's not going to satisfy a physicist or a chemist you know, or a scientist of any other discipline. But I maintain that while that is true and that as scientists, we need hard physical proof and good demonstrable ev evidence that we can, again, formulate hypotheses. We can create experiments around. We can recreate those experiments in the laboratory and we can observe all of said criteria in a way that better educates us and helps us come to conclusions. Sure, I understand that, and that's what science needs. That's how I try to operate. But if the best we have to work with at the current time is anecdotal evidence and interviews with witnesses, 
then yes, let's interview those witnesses and let's try to interpret the facts to the best of our ability. That is all we have. Let's do that to the best of our ability. What does Rhonda think? What does she believe happens to to Fred? She is, uh, you know, remarkably of like mind to myself in the sense that she tries not to give herself entirely to speculation. I mean, I think she would like to think that he was not harmed and and she doesn't know what happened uh, in in, in that regard. Again, I I can only imagine how difficult it would be for someone who has lost a loved one like that. And, you know, sure, your mind may at times gravitate toward, you know, unusual thought processes. I mean, even something, you know, along the lines of a delusion, I, I find that. Rhonda doesn't seem to to think that way. She's incredibly sweet. You know, I can I consider her a very good friend. Now, again, to that point, saying that in public over the years, people have criticized me for that. They're like, you've gotten too close to the case. You believe silly things now, like the fact that he claimed he saw a UFO because you allowed yourself to get too close to the primary witness. And I'm thinking, first of all, she wasn't really a witness. Second of all, no, I don't think that that shadows or, or colors my own interpretation of the facts. And she remains remarkably unbiased in her interpretation as well, based on the discussions and, and the you know conversation that we've kept going over the years. I don't think it's dangerous to get to know some of these people who are related to these circumstances. But let's just be clear, she wasn't a witness herself. She just happened to be dating the guy who went missing. Call the Valentich case what you want. Call it a UFO case. Call it a disappearance. We have these missing 411 cases, to borrow the term from the popular books by David Politis these days. But again, you know, call it what you want. It's a mystery. We'll probably never really know what happened to him. Uncertainty can be a terrible thing. So don't be uncertain about website hosting. If you're looking for world-class website hosting at a fair price, there's a company I want to tell you about, Pair Networks. Pair Networks hosts hundreds of thousands of websites. That's right, hundreds of thousands. Why do I recommend them? Well, it's simple. They set the standard for excellence with a technical support staff that's second to none. Their support team responds so fast, and they always give straight answers. That's important. Plus, they have top-of-the-line technology. That's why Pair Networks offers total reliability for your website with a money-back guarantee. So whether you're a professional web designer or a busy web marketer or you're just getting a site online – Pair Networks is a web hosting plan that's right for you. Log on and learn more at Pair.com. Let me spell it out for you. P-A-I-R.com. P-A-I-R.com. Pair Networks. In another reality, Richard is a very strong and handsome man. Just not in our reality. Although I heard somebody passing him in the hall the other day. and Good, good, a handsome man Richard is. I made that up. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Micah Hanks, anomalist, ufologist, broadcaster is with us. We're talking about the Volantich disappearance. What about the, um, the, the, uh, the cowl flap that uh, washed up somewhere, I'm not sure how far away it was, uh, that was recovered? supposedly belonged to a, a Cessna 182. It, uh, they didn't have the serial number on it, but they believe it could be in, within the range of that particular model. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, that doesn't preclude, you know, a UFO abduction. A piece of the plane could have come off. Who knows? But what do you make of that little piece of the puzzle? That would have been one of the more likely pieces of physical evidence. But again, it was not something that based... Uh, again, Rich, we have to look at this in terms of, like, for instance, 
the the Malaysia Airlines phenomena, this ongoing, you know, uh, MH370. Again, um, I, th- I hope I've got the right one. There yes, was, yes. There was MH17 too also, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, um, trying to keep tra- uh, track of which Malaysia Airlines aircraft had disappeared there for a couple of years. I mean, it was kind of a trend. MH370, on the other hand, again, with the flapper on that shows up at uh, La-, La Reunion Island, uh, we have pretty conclusive evidence linking that to the aircraft in question. With the Valencich thing, again, we had a piece of the cowl of an aircraft that could have belonged to the Cessna that he had flown. There had also been what, at least according to some witnesses who were involved in the, in the search, right after he disappeared, what looked like it could have been an oil slick on the ocean, but when they fly back and try to look for that, they couldn't find it again. And so, again, if an aircraft had actually hit the water, here's what I know. In, in most circumstances it should have left a very noticeable debris field on the surface. There should have been very clear evidence of the wreckage that we did not find. Now, that doesn't mean that that's always the case, and that's part of the great mystery with MH370, but as great a mystery as that is, at least there are some things that we've found that point to the general area where the plane went down and things that are conclusively you know, attributed to having belonged to that aircraft. We, we have that with MH370, we don't have that with the Valintage disappearance. And that was one of the big issues is that if, as the skeptics had said, I'm not just trying to attack the skeptics. I'm, again, a skeptic. I'm just someone who tries to be logical to the point that I don't even like putting a label on it any longer. Just call me Micah Hanks. I'm Micah Hanks, a guy who tries to be logical. <laughs> Where was the debris? And again, if he had crashed into the uh, into the ocean, if he'd been flying upside down and once again crashed into the ocean, there should have been more discernible evidence of that. It seems more likely that he flew closer to land and could have crashed someplace on land in a highly, you know, in a thick area of vegetation. Seriously, this is something that some have, have uh, considered. It's more likely that he would have crashed on land than that he would have crashed on water because of the discernible characteristics of a water crash versus those if he'd crashed on land. People are like, oh, there would have been an explosion if he'd hit land. Not necessarily. In fact, think about and do a search sometime. If if you disbelieve this, folks, go online and look for how many aircraft have vanished over land and sometimes years later are found if they crash and if there's no fire as a result of fuel igniting or anything along those lines and it's in a heavily wooded area, sometimes these aircraft remain missing for decades. Sometimes they remain missing indefinitely. It could be that the Valentich disappearance was actually a land-based crash, and that may explain why we haven't found the aircraft. I was just going to say, ask Toronto Maple Leaf fans about the great Bill Barilko, uh, who disappeared in a, a small plane shortly after scoring the Stanley Cup winning goal in the, sometime in the 1950s. They didn't find him for many years, and they didn't win a cup until they eventually found his body. That same here. A little leaf lore there for you. Micah Hanks is with us. The website, gralianreport.com, G-R-A-L-I-E-N, gralianreport.com. I, want to, I, I, I too find the, um, the Valentich story very interesting and compelling and lots of twists and turns. We're... Some ufologists have claimed, I, I don't have names, and I always hate saying some research, researchers say, but uh, there have been ufologists claiming that there were witnesses who saw uh, a green light in the sky uh, flying around erratically, whether that might have been the UFO. Uh, they saw a plane in a, in, a, in a steep dive at the same time. Any credibility? Does that report have any credibility in your mind at very least yeah anecdotally it does but 
unfortunately, I don't think that it's going to contribute very much to understanding what happened. Uh, Rhonda, in fact, uh, the first time we spoke, she brought to my attention the fact that she had kept a scrapbook over the years, and she's <laughs> very detail-oriented with things like that, and she's kept all kinds of newspaper reports, including uh, having sent some of those to me. And uh, sure enough, yeah, there, there were plenty of reports. And and also, there are others in Australia who have followed this, uh, Andrew Ar Arnold and a number of other great researchers who have looked into this, and they've kept some of those reports too. So sure, there were people who in the in the days and even weeks following the disappearance said, yeah, we saw what looked like a greenish kind of light out there over the Bass Strait. The problem is I don't know that that would contribute very much to helping us understand what exactly happened to him. But again, what makes this case extraordinary is not the fact just that a pilot disappeared, because like you mentioned in, in, in the separate case that you were discussing and any countless uh, others that we wanted to bring up. I mean, there are plenty of aircraft that disappear. I mean, for goodness sake, we're still trying to find Amelia Earhart, uh, let alone the MH370 and other aircraft that have gone missing famously over, over history. What makes the Valencic case extraordinary, to me at least, is the fact that, again, he had had this dialogue with air traffic control describing an object. And what's also interesting, although I can't substantiate this, again, it was indicated to me during the discussions I had with Rhonda that she met with one of the people. This was not a, an official meeting or anything like this, but one of the people who had been involved with the questioning immediately after his disappearance with the flight uh, authority there in Australia. Uh, she said, I was working in a department store and I met this fellow. Uh, he came up to me and says, I remember you. You're the, the girlfriend of the missing pilot. And they struck up a conversation and they were talking and he mentioned something along the lines of, and you know, on the original recording, there may have been more dialogue between Melbourne Air Traffic Control and Valentich after that 14 seconds of metallic scraping. So when she says this, I said, hold on, did he indicate that to you that there could have been more dialogue? She says, that's what I took from the conversation. That's how she said it. Again, the so the transcript was was edited, the the original audio tape edited. The audio tape that was actually released to appear, I think a pair of MUFON researchers in the United States had copies, and then also uh, Guido Valentich, uh, Freddy's His father, father mm -hmm. he had a copy too. At the time that they released that audio, and I'm going to, again, I'm quoting from what they actually said about it, not what anybody else interpreted. The audio was an edited version, they said, of the recording that mm. they released. That is what the flight authority referred to it as, an edited version. Now, who knows what that meant and what they edited that recording has not been made public to a broad range of researchers like you and I and people who can make that you know discernment from ourselves. So there are a lot of missing pieces and a lot of questions, and we have to be very careful if we insinuate anything. But again, based on their wording of the the nature of the audio that was released to the seldom individuals, the select few who got it, and what Rhonda told me based on that conversation a couple of years later, she had wondered if there was not more audio on the tape than what was released to the few who got copies. What do you make of the um, the work that former U.S. Air Force pilot James McGaha and uh, well-known skeptic and a very affable gentleman, I must say, Joe Nickel. I have a, a, a lot of time for Joe. He's a, he's a, a really nice guy, uh, very avuncular, I think is the word that comes to mind, always shows me some magic tricks whenever I go to see him in uh, in uh, New York. But what do you think of the work they did? I mean, they they... Uh, I guess this is going back maybe 2013. They looked at the transcripts, and um, did you did you follow their their work on this case at all? 
Yeah, I have. In fact, I've followed uh, Magea's uh, research as it relates to a lot of other things, too. And again, I always try to keep, uh, you know, affable is the term that you use for Joe Nickel. And again, I always want to try and keep a good relationship with anybody. I can disagree with somebody like Joe Nickel or James Magea on some points. Uh, You know, another one who a guy I really respect, uh, Robert Schaefer. Yes. Um, Yes. I met Robert, uh, in fact, the very year I think I met you at the UFO Congress. He was there. You were, uh, you and I were there. Yes. Um, I, I spoke to Robert Schaefer because I saw he put up a blog. He, he referred to me as all different kinds of very unpleasant things. So I went up to him and I just said, hey, look, you know, we should really talk first. And we actually hit it off. So, you know, again, I can disagree with some of these guys, and I do disagree with Nickel and Megeha because, again, like so many other skeptics, they sat down, they reviewed – information that was publicly available but they took no time for trying to find those who might have known anything and again they're like well ronda rushton wasn't a they didn't say this i'm saying they you know again this is a a a typical complaint about why interview someone who wasn't a witness ronda rushton wasn't there she didn't see this but look at all the information i got from her here's how many times i flew with freddie roughly yes i was in the aircraft with him if again i'm saying this merely to be a good skeptic if she's to be believed but i do believe her i have no reason not to believe her and if again at least we take her word for what it is she says i was in the aircraft with him i saw how he handled an aircraft some of that by the way some of what she says is actually corroborated uh, you know with other records but again she says the way that they quoted me in that report was was inaccurate i was actually going to be on the plane with him that night which might explain why he flew uh, an hour later there was the anecdotal evidence uh, suggested from the discussion with the guy from the flight authority about the uh, the uh, possible length of the audio transcript and versus what was released to the public. Again, all these questions, again, it, uh, the problem and what's so frustrating about it is all of that only gives us more questions at the end of the day, nothing that conclusively helps us solve it. But if you're going to be a good researcher, you need to turn over every stone and you need to ask every question that you can. So, again, with all due respect to Joe Nickel and James McGee, guys who, as skeptics, I have a lot of respect for, just like I do uh, certain people in the UFO community, too. Um, I've got friends and people I respect on both sides, but I say at the end of the day, uh, why am I going out there and doing things that nobody else has thought to do in the several decades since it happened? How come a little upstart, a little 34-year-old motormouth from North Carolina can get on Skype and call people in Australia, ask them questions, and maybe uncover some new details? Why does it take decades for somebody to do that? They should have been doing that the day or two after it happened, at very least within a year. But nobody bothered to interview Rhonda or others who were intimately familiar with aspects of this case. If we're going to be good researchers, you need to turn over every stone, ask those questions. Precisely. And uh, just to sort of summarize McGeha and Nichols' findings, and again, there's, as far as I know, I could be wrong, they were simply working from the radio transcripts. Right. And, and based on that and that alone, they decided that Valentich, apparently he lost uh, sight of the, uh, the horizon it, w- it became tilted. In other words, his plane was sort of uh, off course a little bit. And then he tried to overcompensate. That caused the downward, what they call a graveyard spiral. And then yeah. based on that, they said, well, if he was in a, if he was in a downward spiral, uh, that would have caused a decrease in the fuel flow. That would have resulted in the rough idling and the, ma- the metal scraping sound, perhaps, that was reported by the, the pilot. All that, based on the transcripts, I don't know. Maybe maybe not, but then again, uh, Robert Schaefer has made a similar assertion, and I, I say that at very least, 
that is a very probable scenario. Uh, again, let's we could probably roll it down to at least uh, you know maybe three or four possible scenarios, and and I, I'm going to say possible rather than likely, okay? Because I know that there have been a lot of assertions made over the years. I'm not going to rank these right now in terms of what I think is most likely because I know that there are a lot of you know varied opinions about this. But again, we could say that he was not being honest about what he was seeing and he was describing something strange for different purposes, i.e. a stunt, you know, an elaborate suicide, you know, as people have asserted. I don't buy that at all. I will tell you that much. But that was one thing that's been asserted. It very well could have been that he was misperceiving some celestial phenomena like, you know, the planet Venus through the green shield on the windshield of the aircraft and that he was paying more attention to that than his instruments and then once again may have entered a circumstance where he was unable to control the aircraft or regain control after not paying attention to flying. Uh, maybe he was abducted by aliens. Again, this has been something long held by many of the UFO community and that would explain why there was no wreckage found. But if you want to ask me what's most likely... I don't think that he was looking at a star. I don't think necessarily that it was abducted by aliens either. In fact, I, I really think that that's one of the least likely possibilities. If anything, it sounds to me like there was some kind of phenomena present uh, that was illuminative and something that was, a, again, a free-moving object or source of illumination. Now, What's really interesting is that that very area, the Bass Strait, as a tangent, I'll briefly say, Richard, uh, there there are reports go of, of weird lights that are seen over the Bass Strait that go all the way back to the 19th century, including some that are associated with that mythical ghost ship, the Flying Dutchman. Hmm. And one, one of the popular reports, the uh, Crown Prince of Wales, who had been sailing for a three-year period, kind of traveling around the world and whatnot, he and his brother and the crew were coming along in the early morning hours across the Bass Strait. And they report seeing the Flying Dutchman and that they said that she crossed their bow. But what the description gives is not of a ghost ship. They describe unusual-looking red lights off in the distance that pass in front of their ship. So interesting how the cultural interpretation at that time, you know, 100 years earlier, would have been of the Flying Dutchman. In the 1970s, Valentich sees strange lights in the sky. He calls them UFOs. Again, if we look at this from the scientific perspective— you know, geophysical phenomena in nature that are related to such things as ball lightning, earthquake lights, uh, you know, all these different kinds of natural plasmas and things that may occur under the right circumstances. Is there something geophysically about that area of the Bass Strait that would cause, and I can't call two incidents that may or may not even have any relation to each other, a preponderance, but nonetheless, could there be some other phenomena that would explain what Valentich saw? And could his aircraft have crashed because he was paying attention to them? And here's a final, and I'm going to be really speculative, and this one I think belongs firmly in the realm of sci-fi, but I'll just put it out there purely for sake of having a rounded-out discussion here. What if it was an alien craft or some other kind of an unexplained aircraft? What if his aircraft, his plane was going down, and what if the thing was hovering over him as though trying to warn him? I don't know. You know, I realize some of these are extremely improbable. Some of these may be plausible. Um Again, maybe none of them actually fit the right criteria for what really happened to Valentich, but what we know and what makes the case extraordinary is that he described some sort of an object that had an illuminative quality to it. He saw this, he was describing it, and then he disappeared. We have not found the aircraft yet. Again, much like a magic trick, the eyes see and the mind believes maybe what happened is much simpler than what we have discerned from what he described, but we simply don't know, and maybe, and this is the sad part, we won't ever know. I really wonder sometimes if we'll ever get to the bottom of what happened to him and where his aircraft landed or crashed. Micah, 
I, I have to say this in all seriousness. Uh, ufology needs people like you because uh, where where this field is going right now, often these incredibly f- fantastical uh, tangents, uh, we need level-headed people like you who are um, interested in the data and the evidence. And uh, a real pleasure speaking with you again. It's always a pleasure to speak with you, Richard. Again, I appreciate you. I look forward to hearing more about your podcast, and best of luck with your future endeavors, sir. Micah Hanks, com. Thanks, Micah. Thank you, sir. Well, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs and crawl up to my bedroom and into the old crypt, let me give you a heads up on what's coming up on Episode 7 of Conspiracy Unlimited. But first, I wanted to ask you whether you've heard about this free guide you can download. It contains a list of online power tools that can make you more efficient, secure, and even boost your income. Who wouldn't want that? And best of all, this online toolbox guide is absolutely free. How do you get it? It's simple. Visit freebusinesstoolbox.com and grab your copy while they last. This guide has some of the very same online tools that successful business owners use every day, and each one is highly recommended. Yeah, I know, some websites will offer a special giveaway like this, but then they want to stick you into a recurring program or some other deal. This isn't like that. There's no hidden thing to try, no credit card needed, and no cost whatsoever. Brightbiz is literally giving away this online toolbox guide completely free as a means of, well, putting their best foot forward. But this is a limited time offer. So grab your free guide today and take your business and your income to the next level. Visit freebusinesstoolbox.com and get your free guide to 36 online power tools. That address again, freebusinesstoolbox.com. Coming up on Episode 7 of Conspiracy Unlimited, Dr. Timothy Ball and the Great Global Warming Deception. Until next time, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.